listening to Programmed to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica, with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is episode 8 on the series Who Financed Hitler, Part 2, or Detroit, Kraut Rock City. Today I'm recording from Detroit, specifically the offices of the Ford Motor Company. So when I left off talking about the financing of the Nazi party, I read a quote stating that, with only a few exceptions, Germany's big business and major industrialists did not contribute to the Nazis from the years 1918 to 1923. And in those lean years, the party was kept alive through the donations of the world's largest industrialist, an American. Who are we talking about? That's right, Henry Ford. We have Henry Ford to thank for the Nazi party's survival and eventual triumph, and not in an abstract fellow traveler sense, but through donations of cold, hard American dollars. Let's get into it. Get it? Krautrock? Okay, nobody said you were listening to Program to Chill for the jokes. So I'm not going to do a full biography on Henry Ford, but it's probably worth refreshing everyone's memory. Henry Ford was born in Michigan in 1863, and he would die in 1947. Henry Ford worked with Thomas Edison's company and a local lumber baron to get the capital to start the Ford Motor Company. It would go on to become, for a time, the world's largest automobile company. And also, for a time, he was the world's largest industrialist. Many Americans know about the Model T car, about the factories, and the production line innovations, the relatively high wages for his factory workers. They might know something about Fordism and the franchise dealership system. They might know a fair amount about that. I'm not really in the business of praising industrialists, but he was obviously talented at making his at making his company profitable and successful. I'm not going to go into all the awful things that Henry Ford did while running his business, like for instance strike breaking, his anti-union activities, spying on his workers. I'm not going to go into that weird nativist melting pot ritual that he would make immigrants do where they'd have to enter like a baptismal font and get ritually baptized while wearing whatever ritual dress of their home nationality and then emerge from it wearing identical workers outfits and waving American flags. No, we're going to focus on the Ford business for better or worse. Fewer people know about the Ford Foundation which we will definitely get into in a future episode one day. And, of course, a lot of people know, if they know one thing about Henry Ford that isn't car-related, they might know that he was an anti-Semite. Often you might hear that there was a time that you would get the protocols of the elders of Zion when you buy a Ford automobile. That never actually seems to have been true, but it's not that far from the truth. We're going to get into the details of this, but it might be good to start with the year 1915, which was a humiliating year for Henry Ford. I don't know if you've ever known a successful business person, but if you do, you would know that they are generally insufferable because they usually think they can solve just about any problem if only they'd be given the chance. Henry Ford, one of America's top industrialists, 
thought that he could solve World War I and organize world peace. To his credit, I suppose, he put his money where his mouth was and chartered a ship at his own expense to sail to Europe to negotiate a peace treaty, completely of his own initiative. For context, he was convinced to do what was then called the Peace Ship by a one Rosika Schwimmer, who we're going to talk about for just a second. Rosika Schwimmer, born 1877 to 1948, was a Hungarian-born feminist, pacifist, suffragist. She was a co-founder for the Campaign for World Government. The movement she helped create ended up making the International Criminal Court, which theoretically charges people with war crimes and crimes against humanity and genocide. In 1915, she and Louis Lochner approached Henry Ford with a proposal to launch an amateur diplomatic mission to Europe to broker an end to World War I. Schwimmer said she possessed diplomatic correspondence that proved that the European powers were willing to negotiate for peace, which proved to be an outright fabrication. Henry Ford chartered the ship, the Oscar II, which he named after the Swedish King Oscar II, who was supposed to be a peace-loving monarch. Ford invited many people, including Jane Addams, a famous social worker, sociologist, and later co-founder of the ACLU. He invited William Jennings Bryan, the then-current Secretary of State under President Wilson, he invited his friend Thomas Edison, of course the famous inventor, and he invited John Wanamaker, who was basically one of the key pioneers for advertising and marketing in the United States. All four of them declined to participate, but Henry Ford got a number of peace activists and journalists to join him. When they set sail, the press described the send-off as circus-like, which is perhaps not an auspicious start. Perhaps a sign of things to come, influenza broke out during the voyage, with one person dying. Henry Ford got sick and withdrew to his cabin to stay there permanently. Thinking he was dead, reporters broke into his cabin to check on him, but no, he was still alive. Their first stop, they landed in Oslo, Norway, and it didn't seem that the Norwegians cared about his mission. Henry Ford's friend tried to convince him to abandon the peace ship due to Henry Ford's illness, and Rosika Schwimmer's failure to produce the documents that supposedly proved the countries were ready to broker for peace. Although Ford left, the peace ship kept journeying around Europe, and Ford paid for the ship's expenses all the way until 1917. The whole debacle cost Ford about half a million dollars, or roughly over $10 million in today's money. Of the experience, Ford said, the whole world laughed at my peace expedition, I know. Now you might be able to guess where I'm going with this, but remember Rosika Schwimmer? As you might guess by the name, she was Jewish, which is important because it was important to Henry Ford. Let's read what Henry Ford had to say to a New York Times reporter. <clears throat> and I quote, I know who started this war, the German-Jewish bankers. It was the Jews themselves who convinced me of the direct relationship between the international Jew and war. In fact, they went out of their way to convince me. On the peace ship, there were two very prominent Jews. We had not been at sea 200 miles before they began to tell me of the power of the Jewish race. 
of how they had controlled the world through their control of gold, and that the Jew and no one but the Jew could end the war. I was reluctant to believe it, but they went into detail to convince me of the means by which the Jews controlled the war, how they had the money, how they had cornered all the basic materials needed to fight the war, and all that, and they talked so long and so well that they convinced me. I have the evidence right here. Facts. I can't give them out yet because I haven't got them all. I'll have them soon. Unquote. So what does Henry Ford do after the P-ship debacle? Other than keep running the Ford Motor Company, of course. Well, one thing he does is buy a newspaper, the Dearborn Independent, which was a generally normal country newspaper up to that point. Right off the bat, Henry Ford ran it differently than most newspapers. For one thing, it didn't talk about the Ford Motor Company whatsoever, and it also did not run advertisements, which, you know, doesn't really work as a business model for any newspaper that isn't bankrolled by Henry Ford. The tone of the newspaper, at least at first, has been described as anti-profiteer, anti-monopoly, and anti-reactionary in supporting the Wilsonian ideals of post-war reconstruction at home. Which, I mean, all of that sounds pretty cool, right? I think so, except that within six months, Ford started pressuring the editors to also start attacking the Jews. The editors said that at first Ford focused on what he called the big Jews, but he eventually started to say that all Jews were alike in interest, schemes, and behavior. The newspaper started their attacks on the 22nd of May, 1920, with a headline reading, The International Jew, the World's Problem. And the first paragraph went, There is a race, a part of humanity which has never yet been received as a welcome part. And the article went on to describe the Jewish plot against the world, saying the Jewish question was the prime question confronting all society. The Dearborn went on to publish 91 articles covering a wide range of topics about Jews in world government, in American finance, communism, theater and cinema, sports, bootlegging, pop songs, and went on to accuse them of the decline in American values and culture starting in World War I, and so on. The newspaper even attacked Bernard Baruch, who we talked about in episode 3, if you'll remember, Bernard Baruch and John Foster Dulles together designed the disastrous Versailles Treaty and its punitive debt provisions, arguably causing World War II. Baruch, of course, was Jewish, but John Foster Dulles was decidedly not. The Dearborn Independent called Baruch the pro-consul of Judah and a Jew of superpower, and also called him the most powerful man during World War I. When journalists asked him to respond to these charges, Baruch, with good humor, said, Now, boys, you wouldn't expect me to deny those rumors, would you? Other Jews, of course, were not as happy about the newspaper, and small riots broke out in Pittsburgh and Toledo. Cincinnati got the newspaper censored, and street sales of the Dearborn Independent fell through the floor. The newspaper salesmen were regularly threatened and attacked, and just about every Jewish organization condemned Henry Ford. Prominent Christians, including President Wilson, called on Ford to stop the vicious propaganda, and a nationwide boycott of Ford products resulted. The newspaper cost Henry Ford $5 million to run and was dragging the Ford Motor Company down with it. It's probably worth saying that Ford executives and family members begged Henry Ford to stop and did not seem to share in his obsessions, 
not just going off of what they said after the fact either. The Ford Foundation has spent a lot of time and money repairing their relationship with the Jewish community for what that's worth. At its peak, the Dearborn Independent reached half a million people. A four-volume set of articles was compiled called The International Jew. Translated into 16 languages, it was a bestseller in many countries. It was also not copyrighted, so it could be more easily shared all over the world. With Henry Ford's name prominently listed on the cover, it carried more weight as a piece of propaganda. So what's this got to do with Hitler? For one thing, Hitler was a massive admirer of Henry Ford apart from the anti-Semitism. The New York Times reported that in Hitler's famous brown house, the Nazi party headquarters, Hitler kept a life-sized portrait of Ford on the wall in his office, and he kept copies of the International Jew, which in German was called the Eternal Jew, on display to all visitors. Hitler said, We look to Heinrich Ford as the leader of a growing fascist movement in America, which perhaps overstates it a bit, but still. The international Jew was used to teach school children in Germany from 1933 to 1945. Some people have asserted that there are a great number of similarities between the international Jew and Mein Kampf. Some passages are very similar, bordering on plagiarism. Henry Ford's autobiographies were also bestsellers, and Hitler was a big fan of those as well. It has been asserted that one of Adolf Hitler's great innovations was to make anti-Semitism into a racial distinction rather than a religious or social one. In fact, the U.S. editor to Mein Kampf called Hitler's racial distinction a Copernican discovery. Interestingly, however, Henry Ford was actually the person who pioneered this concept. He and the writers for the Dearborn Independent were the first to make racialized anti-Semitism rather than prior forms of just religious or social anti-Semitism. And as always, these ideas always lead back to the Protocols of the Elders of Zion forgery, which we talked about last episode. Without rehashing all that, it's instructive to look at what Henry Ford and Adolf Hitler both had to say about the protocols when confronted with its obvious status as a forgery. Henry Ford said, The only statement I care to make about the protocols is that they fit in with what is going on. They have fitted the world situation up to this time, and they fit it now. Which, I mean, I hate to make everything contemporary, because that's the lowest form of history, but this remark does remind me of QAnon's magical worldview where you basically insist that even if the protocols aren't real, why, they fit in with reality anyway, so who cares? Hitler's remarks are much more telling and much more interesting. He was having a conversation with Hermann Roschning, and it's important to remember that Roschning fell out of the Nazi party's good graces and emigrated to the United States in 1936, where, of course, he sang for his supper, writing books that criticized the Nazis. As he tells it, he says that Hitler was speaking with Roshning, and it began with Hitler saying that he was appalled when he read the protocols. Hitler said, The stealthiness of the enemy and his ubiquity. I saw at once that we must copy it, in our own way, of course. Hitler went on to say that the fight against the Jews was the critical battle for the fate of the world. Roshning objected, saying, Don't you think you are attributing rather too much importance to the Jews? Hitler said, 
No, no, no. It is impossible to exaggerate the formidable quality of the Jews as an enemy. Roshning replied, But the protocols are a manifest forgery. It couldn't possibly be genuine. Hitler responded, Why not? And then Roshning said, Hitler didn't care whether the story was historically true. If it wasn't historically true, its intrinsic value was all the more convincing to him. Parts of this story perhaps sound embellished, but Roshning's book, Conversations with Hitler, has been heavily attacked by a number of historians and Holocaust deniers. The former, the historians, suggest that the book's conversations are reproduced in impossibly specific detail, while the latter, the Holocaust deniers, go in a couple directions that are not really worth dissecting in terms of the criticisms of that book. Interestingly, the book Hitler's Table Talk, which I referred to in episode 6 about Hitler's abortive arms dealing career, which was published in the 1950s, seems to support Roshning's conversations in topic and tone. The British historian Hugh Trevor Roper said that the general tenor of Roshning's record too exactly foretells Hitler's later utterances to be dismissed as a fabrication. Then again, Trevor Roper did authenticate the Hitler diaries, which turned out to be forgeries, so who knows. Discussing the relative merits and trustworthiness of sources is important, even though I know it's kind of boring. The point is that history is an inexact science, but I do not think that Roshnik's claims here are all that difficult to believe personally. Anyway, let's get back to Hitler's remarks. Hitler said of the protocols that the Nazis needed to copy their approach, which is to say that Hitler was saying they needed to make use of deception to take over the world, which of course is such a phenomenally telling statement to make, assuming he said it, which he probably did. Hitler also said that he did not care if the protocols were historically true, since they were intrinsically true, which again is just magical thinking basically. With that kind of logic, which you do see in Thule and Nazi concepts, as well as their programs and speeches and writing, you basically invent what you want to believe and then assert it through willpower. That's the Nazis' whole shtick, right? The triumph of the will, creating reality through willpower. In a certain sense, it's literally magic. The thing about this, though, is it isn't just magical thinking or clever propaganda, although it is both of those things. This is also an example of mind war, the concept that Satanist and alleged pedophile Colonel Michael Aquino developed as a method of psychological warfare. It's not that Hitler knew the tenets of mind war, it's that Aquino looked to Hitler for inspiration. Doing this is basically like hypnosis, on yourself, except you do eventually run into cold hard reality, whether it's your actual limits as a person, or perhaps say, the USSR's capacity to make T-34s, or what have you. Okay, let's get back to Henry Ford and his anti-Semitism. Now, I'm not the racism expert, but I will say this. People usually don't go so hard on racism to the detriment of their own lives and businesses without several types of reasons, right? Usually, there's a couple major psychological factors at play, and I think you could argue that the peace ship debacle could have been a major contributing factor on the psychological level. 
I'm not Henry Ford's shrink, and I'm not going to pretend to be, so I can only speculate on his personality and insecurities or whatever. But another reason you see for racism is a very grounded, often explicitly economic reason, whether valid or not. And Henry Ford had that too, because he was locked in a battle with bankers over the Ford Motor Company for decades. And of course, he perceived that battle with the bankers to be a battle with the Jews. Henry Ford fought the bankers for a long time, but reportedly it got really bad in 1921. That's when Wall Street almost foreclosed on the Ford Motor Company. There was also the risk that General Motors might obtain control of the Ford Motor Company. Henry Ford himself refused to part with even one share of stock. This battle became news, with one headline reading, Ford Battles Wall Street to Keep Control of Property. And in that truly cucked fashion that only Americans can do, many citizens sent him a few dollars out of sympathy. Henry Ford did shut down production for several months, and it looked like he might fold. Then the assembly plants reopened and made 35,000 cars simply from the stock they had on hand. Between that 35,000 cars and the 30,000 cars that were already made, they were all ready to ship a bunch of cars to their dealerships. The dealers were forced to pay for the cars upon arrival, even though they did not order them. The dealers were forced to pay for the cars or forfeit their franchises. Most dealers had to go to their own banks and borrow the money for the cars. Between that, cutting down on inventory, cashing out Liberty Bonds, and collecting dividends from foreign investments, Henry Ford managed to pay off his debts. So basically, Henry Ford squeezed his own dealerships and made them take on credit rather than do it himself. Corporate screwing the franchisee, a tried-and-true American tradition. And another American tradition is valorizing the huckster rather than telling the true story of what happened, because in the eyes of the average American, he had become a folk hero. Stories about Henry Ford outwitting the bankers and paying his way out were printed in every U.S. newspaper, and sales of his cars went way up. Hitler himself told reporters about Ford's battle against Jewish finance. Henry Ford focused obsessively on the evils of Jewish finance because he was an industrialist, and most industrialists' natural enemy are the financiers and bankers. Adolf Hitler, on the other hand, was a mass politician whose movement drew their strength from the lower and middle classes, so his natural enemy was communism. Consequently, Hitler tended to focus and spend more time talking about communism as a Jewish plot, and spent less time, although still a considerable amount of time, focusing on the evils of Jewish finance. Relatively speaking, of course, because both Henry Ford and Adolf Hitler spent a lot of time talking about both. Also, this isn't directly related to the topic at hand, but apparently Hitler and Ford both loved to complain about the decline in quality of consumer products. From Hitler's table talk, Hitler spoke about the lack of standards in modern commerce, and he blamed such conditions on the Jews. He compared the financial probity and honesty of merchants of the Hanseatic League to the knavery and cupidity of the Jewish merchants. 
each tradesman who possessed the approval seal of the Hansa was obligated to maintain the standard price and, and produce only high-quality goods or face retribution. Quote, quick turnover and quick profit was the essence of Jewish business, according to the international Jew. It is the old Yiddish game of changing the styles to speed up business and make people buy. Nothing lasts anymore. It is always something new to stimulate the flow of money to the pockets of the Jews. Unquote. I also read a great story from a Ford executive who is working late and happened to see Henry Ford also at the office working late. The executive was eating a candy bar as a late dinner, and Henry Ford saw him eating the candy bar and went into a speech on how the candy wasn't as good as it used to be since the Jews got their hands on it. So you can tell he was very fun at parties. Of course, I also dislike the decline in the quality of consumer products. However, I don't blame the Jews. I blame venture capital for hollowing out companies into zombies and exporting industries overseas, and so on. As the saying goes, anti-Semitism is the socialism of fools. Still, it's just interesting to realize that this type of talk can be a vector for anti-Semitism, which is something I didn't realize until I researched this stuff. A man named Isaac Landman of the American Hebrew Magazine challenged Henry Ford to prove that a Jewish plot existed. Henry Ford, perhaps the most literal man ever, and who apparently did not learn his lesson from the peace ship, agreed and set up a headquarters to investigate the Jewish plot in New York City. <clears throat> I should say the headquarters was in New York City, the plot of course being global. Henry Ford hired agents to unmask the secret world government. He hired former secret service agents, professional detectives, and professional anti-Semites. They would stalk Prominent Jews investigate bodies like the War Finance Corporation and had dramatic codenames. In the end, they declared that President Wilson was, in fact, a Gentile front for the secret world government run by Jews. In 1927, Henry Ford was sued by a prominent Jewish attorney from Chicago named Aaron Sapiro because Ford had printed libel saying that Sapiro was involved in a plot to take over all agriculture in the country which of course was demonstrably and provably untrue. They settled out of court after Henry Ford wrote an apology and a retraction of his attacks against the Jews. Henry Ford's retraction and apology are fascinating because in it, Henry Ford says that he was too busy to have paid attention to what the Dearborn Independent was publishing and that the attacks issued therein were not what Henry Ford thought or believed which is hilarious and untrue to such an absurd degree, as there's literally thousands of times Henry Ford had made the exact same statements, but it allowed him to save face, I suppose. Still, Henry Ford apologized and said that his attacks against the Jews were malicious and false and asked forgiveness from the Jewish people. Ironically, though, Henry Ford didn't actually sign the apology letter, his assistant did, and Henry Ford definitely didn't stop being anti-Semitic. So, why did Henry Ford apologize? For one thing, the Ford Motor Company was switching from the Model T to the Model A car, so they were vulnerable, and the dealerships kept complaining that the Jewish boycott and ongoing hostility hurt their business. Jewish-owned businesses, of course, also owned car fleets, 
and none of them were ever Ford automobiles. And these businesses frequently convinced their Gentile business owners to also avoid Ford with their automobile fleets. So now that we've talked about Henry Ford and the Ford Motor Company, we can finally talk about what this episode was supposed to be about, Henry Ford funding the Nazi party. So, U.S. Ambassador to Germany William E. Dodd said in an interview that certain American industrialists had a great deal to do with bringing fascist regimes into being in both Germany and Italy. Oh yeah? Do tell. At the time, certain newspapers reported on Ford's funding of the Nazis, albeit in unspecific terms. The Manchester Guardian reported that Hitler received more than moral support by an American who sympathized with anti-Semitism and thought Hitler would be of assistance in the battle against bankers' capital. The New York Times reported in 1922 that there were widespread rumors in Berlin claiming that Henry Ford was financing Hitler and his movement. The Berliner Tageblatt, the newspaper we talked about in episode 5, with the newspaper buyout scam that probably got Eric Jan Hannesen murdered, the Berliner Tageblatt made an appeal to the American ambassador to investigate the claims of funding in order to stop the financial support. Throughout the 1920s, there were signs and rumors, but they were mostly suppressed and forgotten. In the 1920s, it was not illegal to support the Nazi party, even if you were a foreigner, and of course there was some plausible, if flimsy, deniability for how bad the Nazi party was. People smarter than Henry Ford were tricked by their discount socialist rhetoric. Of course, I'm looking at you, Ezra Pound. Not that they shouldn't have known better, but nobody would disagree that, in a certain sense, there's a world of difference between being a Nazi, toying with Nazi ideology in the 1920s, and being a Nazi in the 1940s. But most political funding at any time is secretive, for all kinds of reasons, for both parties, and so this funding was secretive too. One of the first biographers of Adolf Hitler, named Conrad Haydn, said, quote, that Henry Ford, the famous automobile manufacturer, gave money to the National Socialist directly has never been disputed, unquote. The question, I suppose, then, is how much money? How much indeed? It will probably be easier to figure out how much Henry Ford ponied up if we talk about the mechanisms by which he funded the Nazis. As with most types of political funding, it went through various middlemen, and the book Who Financed Hitler identifies three main channels through which the money flowed. And I'll list them off, and then we'll go through each one by one. The first channel was White Russians. That's right, we're talking White Russians yet again. The second channel was through the Ford subsidiaries in Europe, probably unsurprisingly, and the third channel was the Wagner family. Now let's go through each one. Like we talked about last episode, white Russians, of course, were the Russians who were not red. Typically, white Russians left during the revolution and or civil war and opposed the Soviet Union. Often, they were aristocrats and or right-wing and or had cultural ties to France or Germany or sometimes England and so on. And white Russians pop up in nearly every European spy ring for the entirety of the 20th century. 
Once Henry Ford outed himself publicly as an anti-Semite, the anti-Semites came out of the woodworks and latched onto him like some kind of leech. One of these creatures was Boris Brassel, who was born 1885 to 1963. You can read Brassel's FBI file online, and it is absolutely fascinating reading. And in something that is probably going to be a recurring bit here on Program to Chill, Wikipedia really soft pitches how sinister this Boris Brassel guy was. <clears throat> Seriously, I should probably just have the Kill Bill siren playing on repeat during this entire segment on Brassel, honestly. So, Boris Brassel, of course, was born in Russia. His father was a homeopath because it looks like pseudoscience and health food and esoteric spiritual practices always go hand-in-hand -hand with right-wing politics. Brassel was trained as a lawyer, and he was part of the prosecution in the famous Bailey's blood libel case. For those who aren't well-versed in early 20th century Russian history, that was a famous murder case, which took place in 1911 where a 13-year-old boy, Andrei Yushchinsky, was found stabbed to death in a cave. The Russian secret police found and arrested Menaheim Mendel Belis, despite his basically ironclad alibi that he was at work the entire day. The prosecution was forced to argue that Belis could have ducked out for a few minutes, kidnapped Yushchinsky, and murdered him, and then returned to work. Additionally, most of the prosecution focused on trying to prove ritual murder as part of Talmudic practice, especially focusing on blood libel. And I quote, The prosecution's case was further undermined after it spent a great deal of effort to link <clears throat> the 13 wounds on the boy's body with the importance of the number 13 in Jewish ritual, only to have it later revealed that there were actually 14 wounds on the boy's body. Anyway, Boris Brassel was involved in that disgrace. Brassel also had ties to a group called the Black Hundreds, which was a reactionary, monarchist, and ultranationalist movement in Russia in the early 20th century. The Black Hundreds were vaguely proto-fascist. And they, of course, enacted some pogroms in Russia. During World War I, Boris Brassel fought for a time, but was recalled and sent to the United States to work as a lawyer for an Anglo-Russian Purchasing Committee, which is a great euphemism for espionage work, by the way. Anytime you hear about overseas work in purchasing, that is often espionage cover, and apart from that, purchasing itself can end up being intelligence work. Brussel was definitely involved in intelligence because he was the first person to introduce U.S. intelligence officers to the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Now, of course, the Russian Revolution happened in 1917, and many of the Russians who were not, of course, Bolsheviks were sort of left in the lurch. Brassel, of course, was in the United States, and instead of going back to Russia, he decided to stay. In 1918, Brassel was recruited by U.S. intelligence. What was his work with U.S. intelligence? Good question, and I'm certain it has nothing to do with his activities immediately following this time in his life. So, after the October Revolution in Russia, Brussels stayed in the United States and eventually found his way to Henry Ford. In 1920, 
Russell was hired to write for the Dearborn Independent, where he provided much of the historical background and quote-unquote factual information to be found in the International Jew. If you read his FBI file, he was the first person to bring and translate the forged protocols of Zion into English. Brossel was also friends with William Dudley Pelly, the head of the Silver Shirts, the United States fascist group and would-be ally to the Nazis. Brossel also wrote for Father Coughlin, the famous right-wing radio figure. And Brossel also had ties to Rhodesia and the America First movement. I'm sure that none of these activities have anything to do with him being on the payroll of U.S. intelligence. Brossel also worked with General Marlborough Churchill of the Military Intelligence Bureau, infiltrating anarchist circles in the United States. General Churchill also ran the Black Chamber, which was a peacetime crypto-analytic group that eventually became the NSA. We're getting into very deep waters here. Boris Brussel, in exile, went on to teach at Columbia Law School, which is just fantastic, because imagine you're attending Columbia Law, and the guy who is involved in the Bellis blood libel case is teaching your class. Brussel wrote in a letter, quote, Within the last year, I have written three books which have done more harm to the Jews than ten pogroms. And of course, he should know, since he was associated with groups that actually carried out real pogroms in Russia. Brussel's FBI file was so interesting to me that it threatened to derail this entire episode. So I will wrap up the tangents by saying that Brussel seemed to spy for the United States, the White Russians, the Soviets, the Nazis, the Japanese, he seemed to know every fascist leader in North America, and he was a fellow at the Andhra Research University in Vizianagaran City in South India, and he had ties to Indiana, Sus Indiana, that I am still researching. Norman Hapgood, the journalist and U.S. ambassador to Denmark, said, I have seen documentary proof that Boris Brussel has received money from Henry Ford. Here's how it worked. Boris Brussel was the U.S. representative of Grand Duke Cyril Vladimirovich, the first cousin of the last reigning Tsar Nicholas II. Grand Duke Cyril was one of the rightful pretenders to the Russian throne. The Grand Duke asked Boris Brussel to collect funds for the Russian monarchist cause in the United States. That was the pretext that he and Henry Ford used to send money to Adolf Hitler, who we already discussed in last episode, was receiving some limited funds from the white Russian community already. The Grand Duke, being in exile, obviously didn't have money to spare, so the excuse only worked on a low level, like with customs agents or banks or police. Still, on paper, the Grand Duke gave General Ludendorff, who we've talked about before, the Grand Duke gave General Ludendorff an enormous sum for German right-wing extremists who passed that sum along to the Nazi party. Now, we get a glimpse of at least a portion of the sums that the Nazis were receiving because a white Russian general later tried to get reimbursed for the money they passed along to the Nazis years after the Nazis came to power in 1939. This white Russian general wrote to Nazi officials stating that the Grand Duke had given 
General Ludendorff a sum of nearly half a million gold marks in 1922 to 1923. Mind you, that is not the inflated German currency, but actual marks backed by gold. The general probably knew that the Grand Duke was not the original source of the money and that the money came from Henry Ford, but perhaps he thought that the Nazis had forgotten that. The Nazis did not, and did not repay the money. Now let's talk about Ford's subsidiaries in Europe. Henry Ford had a man in Europe named Warren C. Anderson, a.k.a. Fuzzy Anderson, who initially was a bicycle racer, who later got into the automobile business. He was a branch manager for Ford and moved his way up the corporate hierarchy and was eventually sent to take over all Ford business in Europe. Fuzzy Anderson had full control of production and sales there. According to an official of the SPD, the Social Democrats of Germany, Fuzzy Anderson met with Dietrich Eckhart, who we've talked about last episode. Eckhart, of course, being a Thule Society member and one of the founding members of the Nazi party. He was the guy that went on that secret mission undercover with Hitler. Eckhart asked for financial aid from Ford's agent, Fuzzy Anderson. Fuzzy Anderson met with Henry Ford and began supplying Eckhart with funds, according to the SPD. Unfortunately for this channel, there are not clear numbers on how much money we're talking about. Let's move on to the third channel, the Wagners. So, I don't know about you, dear listener, but I am actually a pretty big opera guy. I don't talk about it much, but I am. Now, I mean I like to go see a production of opera, a live show. I don't sit around in my house listening to opera like a fancy lad. I like Mozart. I like Verdi. I'm a simple man. I actually really dislike Wagner's music. I don't understand it at all, or maybe I do. Maybe that's the problem. There's no accounting for taste, but to me, Wagner sounds like the musical equivalent of an incredibly heavy meal of bad pasta. If you're a Wagner defender, and assuming you're not a Nazi, that's fine, that's fair. I'm willing to believe that it's just me, maybe I'm wrong, but do not message me about it. I am not going to change my mind. And I have made several major attempts. I just can't do it. I sat through the entire ring cycle. I promise you, it is just not for me. Separate from both my tastes and the music itself, if there's one thing a lot of people know about Richard Wagner, it's that he was also a pretty big anti-Semite. And as these things often run in the family, his son, Siegfried Wagner, was also an anti-Semite. Now, it might be unfair to characterize Siegfried as a fail son, but it is generally inadvisable to go into the same field that your father excelled at. Still, Siegfried Wagner decided to become a composer, inadvisable, but he did, and he mainly found success in running the Beirut Wagner Festival. Siegfried was also bisexual, and chose not to marry for a long time despite his mother's pleading and wishes. Then, the hardin Eulenburg affair, which, look it up, it's amazing, basically everyone in Kaiser Wilhelm II's court was a closeted homosexual. Then that affair happened, and it helped his mother convince Siegfried to get married, to avoid a scandal, and perhaps in his mother's eyes, hopefully to keep him from having further affairs with men. At 45 years old, Siegfried meets a 17-year-old Winifred Williams, a British teenager, and they get married when she turns 18. 
Now, who was it who said that all politics is sexual pathology? Wilhelm Reich, maybe. I don't know. I think it was him. That all politics is sexual pathology, yes, that point can be carried to excess, but there is something there in the sentiment. I don't know. Either way, though, Winifred Williams was, you might say, a little unfulfilled in her marriage. And, completely unrelated, she became a huge fan of Nazism. Nor was it a fluke or a temporary thing, because even after World War II, Winifred Williams, or I guess Winifred Wagner, kept playing hostess to various fascists from all over the world. Relevant to this story, in 1924, Siegfried and Winifred Wagner were touring the United States, conducting his father's music and raising money for the Beirut Festival, the annual Wagner Festival, uh, as it was shut down during World War during World War One and had yet to start again. Who was traveling with them? That's right, it's the Nazis' number one fundraiser, Kurt Ludicky, who we talked about in prior episodes. Now, Kurt Ludicky, as a refresher, of course, was a Nazi party fundraiser. He also ran the elite stormtrooper company of the SA. So what was he doing traveling with the Wagners? Why, raising money for Hitler, of course. The Wagners were here on a mission not very different from mine, Kurt said. They took a train to Detroit specifically to see Henry Ford, which they took on January 31st, 1924. The Wagners and Ludicky went to Fair Lane, the 2,000-acre estate of Henry Ford, where they reportedly had dinner and conversation. From the accounts of the participants, they had salad, fresh vegetables, and a small portion of meat, since Ford was also basically vegetarian. Birds of a feather or something. The following day, Kurt Ludicky met Henry Ford in Ford's office, where he made his pitch. The pitch was what you might expect, heading to the crux of the matter when Ludicky said, quote, Hitler's successor failure was a world issue, involving the future of America as much as that of any other nation. Anyone who helped the Nazis now would benefit from a business standpoint as well. Agreements could be arranged which would guarantee concessions in Germany as soon as Hitler came to power since a Nazi regime in Germany might lead to a change in the Russian situation, the reopening of that vast market would bring tremendous business rewards to those who had befriended Hitler, unquote. Now, according to Kurt Ludicky in his memoirs, he said that this meeting was in vain and that Henry Ford made no definite commitment of financial assistance. Wikipedia, I should start calling it Shampedia or something. I'll work on, I'll workshop that. We'll, we'll, we'll get something better than Shampedia. But Wikipedia uncritically repeats this as a fact without citations for what that's worth. Still, it is important to remember that the Nazis, of course, were liars. And Ludicky himself coyly refers to this fact that Henry Ford absolutely did fund the Nazis. He said, quote, no man in the public eye can endow an insurgent revolutionary movement as casually as he would contribute to a home for homeless animals, there being a profound difference of opinion about what constitutes human welfare, donations in that direction may backfire, unquote. Ludicky also referred to the Jewish boycott as a reason why Henry Ford might hypothetically keep his donations a secret. Again, 
Ludicky is saying it without saying it, which is something Nazis love to do. As you might imagine, we don't have any definite amounts for this channel of funding either. Now let's move to the final scene. On Henry Ford's 75th birthday, he was awarded the Grand Cross of the Supreme Order of the German Eagle. He was the first American to receive it, and the fourth person to get it at all. It was the highest decoration that could be given to a non-German citizen. Benito Mussolini, for example, had received the honor earlier that year. The presentation was made in Henry Ford's Dearborn office by the German consuls of Cleveland and Detroit. They placed the red silk sash over Henry Ford's right shoulder with the sash worn in a diagonal line from right shoulder to left hip, where it was clasped with a gold and white cross. Then they pinned a large shining star medal onto Henry Ford. The decoration was given, quote, in recognition of Henry Ford's pioneering and making motor cars available for the masses, unquote. Wink. And the award came with Hitler's personal congratulatory message. At Henry Ford's birthday dinner, the citation was read aloud to 1,500 prominent Detroit citizens in attendance. Now, I know this episode probably ran long, but let's recap here for a second. What did all of this teach us? For one thing, we can see that our industrialists are huge dumbasses. They might be good at running their own businesses, but that doesn't mean they really know anything else, even if they act like they do. What's more, they usually have very strong, very specific interests that are specific to their class, and it does not necessarily conform to what would actually be the best for the rest of society. Even when they're right about something, like, say, opposing World War I, it's still usually for the wrong reasons, because in Henry Ford's case, he just wanted his workers back to keep making and buying cars. Two, we can see that anti-Semitism is the socialism of fools. Hitler and Ford were both great at identifying genuine structural problems, along with a lot of fake or hilariously telling problems, but by definition, they were incapable of applying the correct answers, because they relied on irrational, magical thinking that scapegoated the Jews instead of correctly identifying real solutions. Henry Ford, we see, saved his business by shoving the burden of credit onto his dealerships, and he was hailed a hero, which is a trick that never really goes away, and very few people seem to see through it. We can see that Henry Ford did not fund the Nazis simply because he was embarrassed by the peace ship, although it certainly helped. Henry Ford funded the Nazis because heavy industry and certain sectors of manufacturing are way more reliant on fixed costs than light industry. Therefore, they need more flexibility in dealing with labor, as in the freedom to do layoffs and cut wages. So in real concrete terms, that means that heavy industry needs to discipline labor more, which is what fascism is really about. Henry Ford funded the Nazis through the White Russians, through his company's subsidiary in Europe, and through the Wagner family. The White Russians, of course, mainly through their aristocratic background and international orientation, were a constant vector of espionage, usually for the political right, 
and have always been a fun and interesting source of spooky connections wherever you go. The Wagner trip to the United States shows us how espionage can go hand-in-hand with cultural and artistic business, and you can see how you can't really trust the Nazis to tell the truth about certain things, like especially, say, money. Finally, Henry Ford was not recognized by Hitler for his ability to make cars. He was obviously recognized for his anti-Semitism, for his influence on Hitler, and most specifically for all the tangible material support he provided the Nazis in the form of cold, hard currency. I'm not going to tell you what to think, but I point out here that Henry Ford's legacy looks a whole lot worse when you realize that he wasn't just an anti-Semite, but was in fact one of the most crucial funders of the Nazi party. Sounds bad, man. It just might make you start to question the United States' role in the world, or perhaps the wisdom of Fordism and its mass production and consumer patterns. It might make you question how often global capital funds these murderous regimes. Like, gee, I don't know, man. So, for sources, again, I used the extremely good book Who Financed Hitler, as well as Boris Brussel's FBI file, as well as various articles from newspapers about Henry Ford and the Ford Motor Company. To a lesser extent, of course, I used the International Jew, Mein Kampf, Conversations with Hitler, and Hitler's Table Talk. Thanks for listening, and thank you for telling people about the podcast. I've been seeing some great posts on Twitter. I absolutely love that. If you have a friend out there who wants to learn about conspiracy theories beyond the entry level of CIA is bad, show them the podcast. So I need to get going. I'm on my way to Munich. Uh, I'm headed to Five Caroline Plots via Bruckman. See you next week, and God bless.